Hello and welcome back to Tectonic, a show in which we look at the way technology is changing our lives. I'm John Thornhill, Innovation Editor at the Financial Times in London. In this episode, we talk to a journalist who has spent decades looking at the intersection between technology and policy and has drawn some alarming conclusions about cyber warfare threats. You could easily imagine an escalation scenario in which something that was meant to be targeted ended up turning off the power, turning off communication systems, making a target country feel like, oh my goodness, this is the prelude to a much bigger attack. We better attack first while we still can. And then you're on the escalation cycle. That was New York Times reporter David Sanger, who came into the FT to talk to me about his latest book, The Perfect Weapon, War, Sabotage and Fear in the Cyber Age. Welcome, David. Great to be with you, Jack. Can you tell us a bit about your reporting background and how you became interested in the whole issue of cyber warfare? Well, I've been a national security reporter for a long time, but I was also a foreign correspondent in Asia. And then when I came back to Washington, which was nearly a quarter of a century ago for a three-year assignment, so it shows you how much I'm screwing up along the way here. Uh, I uh, covered the White House, chief Washington correspondent, but all along the way, I have sort of focused in on the intersection between technology and policy. And about 10 years ago, when I was working on my first book, a book called The Inheritance, which was basically about everything that George Bush was leaving for Barack Obama other than the wreckage of Iraq, I began to dig into cyber as a potential weapon. And reports that I had heard and subsequently uh, bore out that George W. Bush, in the last year of his presidency, had been approached by the Israelis in their effort to get from him bunker-busting bombs and aircraft that they could use against Iran. And instead, he engaged them in a pilot project that the U.S. had already begun, which was later codenamed Olympic Games, to try to use cyber for the first time in a very sophisticated way to get into the computer controllers for the centrifuges deep underground in Iran that produce uranium. These machines move at supersonic speeds. And the idea was that if you could destabilize them, you could blow them up remotely, something that until that time you couldn't have thought of doing without either bombing from above or sending in saboteurs. And that plan ultimately worked. It didn't set back the Iranians for more than a year or so, but it turned out to be the most sophisticated attack out. And that actually was the opening of my next book, which was called Confront and Conceal, which was about Obama's first term. And President Obama himself had gone through this sort of tortured Obama-like debate within the Situation Room about whether in using this weapon we were opening the floodgates to every other country that wanted to use cyber weapons anyway, but would then feel less constrained because the United States had done it. And in fact, as you learn from the perfect weapon, that's exactly what happened. At the time that I had worked on the last book, we couldn't find another sophisticated case. There have now been in the past five or six years, 200, 250 cases that we know about. And those are 200 state-on-state state attacks? State-on-state attacks of varying levels of sophistication. How do we know that they take we've place? Seen, we've seen some of them quite in public. The Iranians attacked Saudi Aramco and destroyed a lot of their computer systems, not production, but sort of back office. The North Koreans went after Sony 
uh, and this is described at some length in the book, not only releasing emails that taught you vital things like Angelina Jolie can be difficult to work with on the set, but also destroyed about 70% of their computing power. We've seen the Russians, of course, do the election attacks. But as this book points out, before they went into the Democratic National Committee, they were into the White House, the Pentagon, and the State Department and paid no price for it. And part of the book argues that while the Obama administration sat there debating what to do, the message Putin took away was they're not going to defend the White House. Who's going to care about the Democratic National Committee? Some people call cyber the fifth domain of warfare. We had land, sea, air, space. Is it useful to think of cyber as being a fifth domain of warfare? Well, it's useful in a political sense because it's very hard to get members of Congress, educated citizens, others accustomed to the thought that this can be used as a weapon. Their minds, when that happens, tend to go to the most extreme case, turning off all the power from Boston to Washington or Los Angeles to San Francisco or across London. In fact, where the fifth domain helps you is to make you understand that it can be used in very subtle ways, as the Russians did in the 2016 election and attempted in Germany and France and maybe here for the Brexit vote, depending on how much you believe their influence was there. How much do you believe their influence was there? Marginal. It's the same problem I have with the U.S. election, which is I can't be persuaded that the vote would have gone the other way had the Russians stayed home. That doesn't mean to say it wasn't influential. It doesn't mean that they didn't try and doesn't mean they didn't influence some people. But the problem with when you're trying to measure information warfare and its effects is you have to get in between the ears of each individual voter and figure out whether they were influenced by something they saw the Russians put out or whether they were going to vote that way anyway. And you'll never know that. So the fifth domain is useful for thinking of it in that terms. Where it becomes less useful is that in real life, in a wartime situation, cyber would be integrated with everything else. So you would start a conflict not by softening up the target with missile fire the way you happened in the opening night of the Iraq war, but rather by unplugging a country and trying to see how much of its defenses you can bring down and its offensive capability just by turning off the lights and the communication systems and everything associated with them. And that makes it a very different form of warfare, doesn't it? I mean, as you point out in the book, cyber warfare is incredibly cheap. It's very fast. It's invisible in many respects. Very easy to deny that it's you. So it's a very different form of offense and necessarily defense as well. That's Um, right. How do you theorize about this new form of warfare? Well, the first thing is that its greatest use is actually short of war. That while it would be used in warfare... We're seeing it used every single day in ways that are calibrated to be short of war and therefore not bring about a military response. So think about the North Korean attack on Sony. That was in response to a movie, a really bad movie, that Sony was making called The Interview that imagined it was sort of a farce and it imagined the assassination of Kim Jong-un. But the North Koreans aren't known for their sense of humor, and they took it quite seriously. And when Sony wouldn't back down, that's when they started off on this attack. Now, in a pre-cyber age, 
they still could have destroyed Sony's computer systems, but they would have had to land some commandos in L.A. and fight through the traffic and stick some dynamite under the computer center and then, you know, run like hell. In a cyber age, they didn't even have to enter the country. They did this with code. And they got a tiny response from the U.S., some economic sanctions that I'm betting they never felt amid all the other economic sanctions on North Korea. If they had done this in the traditional way and blown up the computer center, my guess is some American president, any American president, Democrat, Republican, would have had to make something blow up in Pyongyang. But because there was no visible smoke on CNN, you know, that you were watching, you know, on television of a blown up center, there was a debate. Was this an act of war? Was it just an act of sabotage? Was it an act of terrorism? In the end, President Obama called it electronic vandalism, which was probably too light, but I don't think necessarily it was an act of war. But because of the invisibility of the response and the counter-response, it could be possible that the Americans did massively interfere with some aspect of the North Korean missile program or try to disrupt the launch of their rockets and so on. So, so they did do the missile program, but it wasn't in response to the Sony hack. President Obama ordered those attacks on the North Korean missile program in January of 2014, which was nine months, 10 months before the Sony attack even happened. So clearly it was not in response. But it did grow out of the Iran experience because his question was, what can we do to slow down the North Korean missile program while we try to figure out a diplomatic solution or some other solution to this problem? And that's why offensive cyber is any president's favorite weapon because it's casualty-free for the United States. It doesn't require sending troops abroad. You don't have to notify Congress. You can just call it a covert action and do it under the president's own authorities. And so it's as attractive to presidents as it is to weak states like Iran and North Korea. But as you're saying, it is an asymmetric weapon. It is a lot easier for North Korea or Iran to disrupt a massively connected and open and vulnerable society of America than it is perhaps the other way around. That, Absolutely. And you have this wonderful quote in the book where you quote an American general saying that you can't turn the lights off in a country where they haven't been turned on in the first place. That's um, right. And that's why you know, the book's called The Perfect Weapon. And for the North Koreans, it really is. There are, I would guess, fewer IP addresses inside North Korea than there are on this block where we are right now, where, where the FT's headquarters are. And to get at the North Korean networks, you have to go through China, because China's the gateway in for just about everything. The Russians are now opening a separate gateway for North Korea, because the North Koreans didn't want to be completely dependent on the Chinese. But what that tells you is, if you're going to launch this attack, you've got to go do it through Chinese networks. And the Chinese may have opinions about that. So yes, it's a much more useful tool for them. Not only that, but most of the North Korean attacks that we've seen haven't actually come out of North Korea. They've come out of North Korean hackers who are either in China or enjoying life on the beach in Malaysia or Thailand. We've seen them you know, throughout Southeast Asia. In your subsequent reporting after the book came out, you were reporting that the American strategists are now thinking of cyber in much more offensive ways. Let's talk a bit about Iran, where this might be the most relevant issue. Clearly, the Iran accord has broken down. Trump has adopted a far more aggressive attitude towards Iran. Is cyber going to be in the front line of the U.S. policy towards Iran now? I can't imagine that it wouldn't be. 
prior to the 2015 nuclear agreement that the Obama administration put together, there was a lot of concern in Washington that the United States could find itself in a conflict with Iran, either that the Israelis bombed and the U.S. was drawn in, or that the Iranians did something foolish out in the Persian Gulf and you know sank an American ship. I mean, you could draw all kinds of scenarios. And so they put together a plan, fortunately one that was never used, called Nitro Zeus. I don't know who makes up these code names, but they're all pretty good. Right? Uh -huh. And the plan was basically for how you would unplug Iran and try to go about winning a war without firing a shot. And it was put together by these new American cyber mission teams that are part of a new American military operation called United States Cyber Command. Cyber Command has been elevated to the same level as, say, Central Command, which runs the wars in the Middle East and so forth. The idea of Nitro Zeus is you take the conflict to the enemy. And if you read Cyber Command's own documents these days, what they tell you is that Cyber Command's view is you can't wait to get attacked. You have to go in and find the attack being masked in foreign countries. This is drawn directly from counterterrorism theory. You know, the old days, prior to 9-11, we were thinking, well, you try to stop bombs at the border. After 9-11, we said, we're going to go find the bombers or the attackers in their safe house in Pakistan and blow them up before they can launch their operation. Well, the cyber concept is very, very similar. It's, we're going to find the code coming together and deal with it when it's still in some foreign server and before it gets delivered. Makes sense, but the possibilities for miscalculation are very high. Imagine for a moment you see a Chinese code coming together, and you go in and you fry the circuits that it's on or wipe out the code. The Chinese come back and say, you've just taken out the server of a group of our best educational software designers who are designing curriculums for kindergarten kids throughout China. Thank you very much for blowing this stuff up. And you'd never be able to prove what you think you know. And then you're off to the races. So do you think this concept of hacking back is a very bad idea in that sense, just because it's impossible to know really who you're then responding or targeting? You want to control it carefully. And part of the difficulty here is there are a lot of companies, American, British, European, who are interested in hacking back themselves. This debate came up at Google in 2009 when they were attacked by the Chinese. And there was a mix of a lot of talent at Google and maybe a little bit too much testosterone. And they were saying, you know, we'll go fix these guys until people came in and said, let's slow down here. The problem is if you had a company that was hacking back, the recipient of that hack in China or Russia or wherever they were wouldn't necessarily know whether that hacker was working for a private company, working for the United States government, maybe for both. And suddenly you could find yourself in a cyber conflict that no one in Washington actually even knew was starting. That's a pretty scary thought. Yes. It? What about the concept of cyber weapon? Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. ...resulting in blowback. I mean, you referred earlier to the Stuxnet virus that was used against the Iranian centrifuge program. The North Korean attack on Sony was almost a kind of rebound from the NSA development of WannaCry... Is this another thing to be concerned about, that a lot of the weapons that you could use in this war can be captured and repurposed and thrown back at you? This is the perfect example of what happens when people pick up stray weaponry on the battlefield. So in the Stuxnet case, the attacks on Iran, the code got out, not because any journalist revealed it, but because someone messed up. There's a debate about whether it was the Americans or the Israelis, but whoever did it, the code got out there. Pieces of it were then repurposed, reprogrammed, and turned into weapons that were used against the United States and its allies. But the biggest case of this was really WannaCry. So at some point around 2016, while the Americans were wrapped up in this little presidential election that we've all heard so much about, a group began publishing NSA weapons code. The group was called Shadow Brokers. And while the NSA, the National Security Agency, never admitted this code was theirs, it was theirs, and it came right out of their most secret operation, something that used to be called the Tailored Access Operations Group, a group that broke into foreign computer groups. Well, the WannaCry attack that so paralyzed the British health system, but others as well, used some of this code. Now, I wrote in the New York Times that if this had been a missile that had been lost in the American arsenal and shot back at a great ally like Britain, and it turned out to be American in origin, someone would have been court-martialed. I mean, there would have been real hell to pay. Instead, because it was cyber in nature and thus secret in nature, the NSA simply said, we're not saying where this code came from. Maybe it was ours, maybe it was someone else's. That's not important. The only group responsible for it is the North Koreans for shooting it out in the first place. I said, well, that's mostly true, but not entirely true. I mean, if you left a gun locker in America unlocked in your basement and, God forbid, the gun was used in a school shooting, there's some liability for the person who left that weapon lying around. And I'd say, why isn't that same rule apply to the NSA? They don't want to answer that question. Who are the superpowers in this new cyber world? Well, certainly the United States, certainly Britain and GCHQ. And there's a chapter in the book that describes how GCHQ was the first to warn the United States that the Russian military intelligence unit called the GRU was inside the Democratic National Committee. Certainly Israel. They're all extremely skilled. The Australians are better than you'd think. Then Russia and China. For very different purposes, the Russians for disruption, no surprise, the Chinese for stealing technology, no surprise, right? Then I would say that after that, Iran and North Korea in, you know, American baseball world, we would say they're a minor league team, but quite promising and working their way up pretty quickly. A number of countries in the Middle East and Eastern Europe are getting better and better, and one example that you cite in the book is the Russia-Ukraine war, which was both a hot war and it was also a cyber war as well. What do we learn from that experience? 
Well, a lot of things. It's a hot war in the east of Ukraine, where, of course, we're seeing continued low-level shooting battles, tragic loss of an airplane, and so forth. But we're also seeing a cyber war underway just about every day in Kiev. The chapter on Ukraine is called Putin's Petri Dish, and it's because he experiments with everything he's going to use in Ukraine first. And had we been awake in the United States, we would have seen that every technique the Russians used in the 2016 election, they used first in Ukraine to see what worked. And ultimately, they turned off the power in two parts of Ukraine, not for a long time, but they completely owned the electronic controls over the power systems in two different regions so that utility control workers would sit in their control room and they would watch helplessly as cursors moved around on their screens and someone was systematically turning off power plants and there was nothing they could do about it. Now, I heard a security official recently comparing our current times to those of August 1914, which is more than alarming, in the sense that he thought it was possible that you could have an attack that would lead to massive miscalculation and catastrophic escalation. Is that an interesting, useful scenario to think about? It's a pretty useful scenario. As we said before, a lot of states have calibrated their attacks so as not to bring about a military response. But the fact of the matter is that while cyber may be the perfect weapon, it's not always perfectly controlled. And you can have side effects that you do not anticipate. Witness that WannaCry case or witness the NotPetya attack that was used against Ukraine last year that ended up infecting the Maersk shipping system. I don't think that the Russians were sort of aiming at Maersk. And it also affected some computer systems in Russia. So once you release the code, you may not fully understand how it's going to interact with the networks it's in. So you could easily imagine an escalation scenario in which something that was meant to be targeted ended up turning off the power, turning off communication systems, making a target country feel like, oh my goodness, this is the prelude to a much bigger attack. We better attack first while we still can. And then you're on the escalation cycle. What can be done to stop the risks of this miscalculation? I mean, you've heard it in previous eras of great tension between, say, the US and the Soviet Union, that there were attempts to put in protocols agreements whereby people would flag whether they were going to have rocket launches and so on, and the red telephone was installed. And Is it possible in the same way to have a mechanism, international agreements, protocols to reduce the risk of miscalculation? You certainly could learn a lot from the Cold War era. And there were critical moments when that was important. I tell the story in the book of a moment when a former American Secretary of Defense, when he was a lower-level official, actually got woken up one night because he was told that the Soviet Union, it appeared, had launched a massive attack on the U.S., and it turned out instead some of the United States had taken a training tape and put it in the real system by mistake one night, and it seemed like the U.S. was under attack when, in fact, it was just being simulated. That's a moment when you want to have a hotline to have a discussion. In the cyber era, though, it's difficult because you might be seeing an attack that the government didn't launch. And the Russians or the Chinese or the Iranians could say, not us. But it turns out it was hackers on their territory. It's easy to spoof an attack in cyber. 
for the North Koreans to make an attack look like it was coming from the Iranians. So the big question is, if you had that hotline, would you believe what you're hearing on the other side? Most treaty arrangements of the kinds that we had during the Cold War don't apply here. First of all, the technology moves too fast. Secondly, cyber is not just in the hands of governments. It's in the hands of criminal groups. It's in the hands of patriotic hackers. It's in the hands of teenagers. That collection of three don't usually sign treaties, particularly teenagers, if my household is any indication. So my sense of it is that we're going to have to develop some rules of the road. Brad Smith, the president of Microsoft, and a similar effort among some executives at Siemens have come up with ideas about a digital Geneva Convention, one in which a set of principles about how you don't use these weapons against civilians could be agreed upon. Would it be violated on a regular occasion? Yeah. But, you know, we've seen Assad still gassing civilians. But at least there is a sense that if you do this, you could find yourself in the International Criminal Court at The Hague sooner or later and that the evidence will catch up with you. And the other way to reduce our vulnerability is surely to harden our cyber defenses. Is there a big effort in America and elsewhere to do exactly that? There is, but it's extremely uneven. So the companies with the most to lose and the government institutions with the most to lose are the ones that are investing heavily. The financial industry in the United States has done a very good job of this because they realize that one catastrophic hack in which they lose a lot of customers' money, they're out of business. You're not going to trust putting your money in Bank X if you think it's got weak cybersecurity any more than you would put your money in a previous age in Bank X if you, they, you thought that they left the vault door open on the weekends, right? But smaller institutions, smaller utility companies, electric companies, simply don't have the money to go do this. This is why so many people use Gmail. You don't have the ability to use a smaller or home mail server and keep up with all of the different threats you have to filter out against. So you make a sort of unspoken bargain that you may not even be thinking about, which is Google will provide me with email services for free, and it's something you use constantly, and you'll use their filtering, and you're trusting Google to get rid of the worst stuff that could come into your email box. But in return, you're giving them tons of information about you, and they're marketing to you. So that's the trade. What's the old saying? You know, if it looks like a web service is free, that's because you're the product. You know? So similarly, in cyber defense, you're not going to be able to do more than the equivalent of locking your doors and windows. You'll have two-factor authentication. So there's a code sent back to your cell phone. So you're to try to have reasonable assurance it's you logging into your bank account. But you're not going to be able to protect against a state any more than locking up your windows and doors protects you against an intercontinental ballistic missile landing in your neighborhood. As you said at the start, you've been focusing on national security for a long while now. How alarmed are you about cyber relative to the threat of terrorism or the possibility of a hot war breaking out somewhere? There's a reason that cyber has gone from not being anywhere on the U.S. threat assessment that's given to Congress each year. It's missing in 2007. In the past four or five years, it's been number one, ahead of terrorism, ahead of nuclear proliferation. So is this as catastrophic as nuclear? No. If we had a nuclear attack 
the loss of life would be far greater than something I think that would happen in cyber, except in the most extreme cyber cases. But the likelihood of somebody using a nuclear weapon, fortunately one has not been used since 1945 in anger, is pretty low. And there are only nine states that have nuclear weapons. There are now between 30 and 40 states that have significant cyber capability, and we're seeing cyber being used every day. So the chance for miscalculation, the chance for escalation, the chance that somebody's going to find a new and innovative way to go use it is very high. And in the book, I say we're sort of right at the end of where World War I was for air power. The Wright brothers in 1909 showed a bunch of army generals their military flyer. It was unarmed. They looked at this thing and said, it's great. We'll fly over enemy territory. We'll see where their defenses are. Then we'll send the cavalry in. Well, Within five or six years, this was armed, and the Red Baron was doing, you know, air battles and World War I and so forth. Within 35 years, we merged it with a nuclear technology and dropped an atomic bomb on Hiroshima and another one on Nagasaki. Nobody, when they started off with air power, imagined a nuclear weapon. How could you? They certainly didn't imagine using one device to deliver the second. And that's what worries me. Thank you very much, David, for a deeply disturbing but very fascinating conversation. Thank you. We've been asking listeners to send in their views on overrated and underrated technologies, potential threats to the tech industry, and what non-tech book they would recommend that has influenced how they think about technology. Let's hear the views of our columnist Tim Harford on these questions. I think the most underrated technology is paper. Everybody makes a fuss about the Gutenberg printing press and how it changed the world, but it couldn't have changed the world without paper. And paper is still incredibly widely used, but it also teaches us a lesson about how technology works. It is often the very simple, humble, cheap stuff that is transformative, not the complicated, sophisticated things. I'm concerned that we've become too focused on incremental marginal improvements, things you can churn out quickly and measure, and they are incredibly important, but we've lost our appetite for the long shots, for the big leaps that are likely to fail, but if they succeed, will produce remarkable results. A book that's influenced how I think about technology is William Goertzman's history, Money Changes Everything. It's a comprehensive academic history of all sorts of financial technologies in civilizations all around the world for thousands of years. Insurance, paper money, coinage, derivatives, banking. It showed me how important finance is as a technology and also how old some of these technologies, they seem modern, how old they really are. Well, I hope that's inspired you to contribute to our informal survey. If you'd like to take part in the debate, please email us at tectonic at ft.com. Why not send us an audio recording that we can include in a future episode? We'll be back with another episode of Tectonic next week. In the meantime, if you're not already a subscriber and would like to discover more FT content, take a look at our subscriber offers at ft.com forward slash offer. This episode of Tectonic was produced by Fiona Simon.